The great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, I believe that one reason why the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. The fact is, throughout the history of Christianity, there have alternately been periods of time where the church stood in stark contrast to the popular culture around it, while at other times being in lockstep with the culture. And although it is an oft-held idea, especially in this modern era, that the church is most effective at fulfilling the Great Commission, at spreading the gospel when it is most accepted by mainstream culture, history actually doesn't bear that out. I've shared this research with you before by scholar Nancy Piercy, who studied the church's growth patterns since its inception, where she came to some striking conclusions. She writes, it is a common assumption that in order to survive, churches must accommodate to the age. But in fact, the opposite is true. In every historical period, the religious groups that grow most rapidly are those that set believers at odds with the surrounding culture. As a general principle, the higher a group's tension with mainstream society, the higher its growth rate. Think about that last statement. As a general principle, the higher a group's tension with mainstream society, the higher its growth rate. That is the exact opposite of conventional wisdom when you're trying to make something grow, right? When you're trying to grow a business or a movement or an organization, mass appeal, right? typically that's a good thing. Generally speaking, the more popular an organization is, the more able it is to grow, and yet the opposite is actually true of the church. We are historically, statistically, most effective at making disciples of Christ when we are most at odds with mainstream society. Again, Spurgeon says, put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history, and I will find a little marginal note reading thus. In this age, men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Never were there good times when the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another. The more the church is distinct from the world in her acts and in her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ and the more potent is her witness against sin. He said that in 1860, yet I don't think it could be any more relevant today. So why is it that we are more effective in accomplishing our mission as the church when we are most unlike the culture around us? Well, part of the reason is the fact that people who are seeking truth are seeking something that cannot be found in the world, right? By definition, they're looking for something different than what they've already found in popular culture. That's why they're seeking. And yet, if what they find in the church is just more of the same, right, more of what they already have, then why bother with the church or its message to begin with? You see, what is truly unique about the church is actually not our ability to entertain people. Look, the, the world already does that better than the church ever will. Honestly, we need to get over this idea that the church needs to try to rise to a level of proficiency in our presentation that somehow rivals the entertainment industry in our culture. It's never going to happen, and even if it did, that is not our mission anyway. That is not why we exist. 
Okay, what is truly unique about the church is not our ability to provide interesting or engaging programs or events that keep people coming back. Because look, there are so many interesting and engaging programs and events happening all of the time in the world around us. The church on the whole will never have the ability to compete with the world for people's attention and attendance based on our programs and events. And that's not our mission anyway. It's not why we exist, right? What, what's unique about the church is not even the fact that we gather people together and create this sense of community around something we have in common because, listen, the culture around us has been doing that and doing it well, by the way, in many forms, literally longer than the church has existed. And that's not our mission anyway. It's not why we exist, no. What is unique about the church, what people cannot find anywhere else, what the world is desperate for that can only be found here, is our message. The message of the gospel, which is and always has been decidedly and subversively counter to the culture. You see, it's our message and how that message fundamentally changes the people who receive it that sets us apart from everything else in this world. That's what people are actually looking for. And you have to understand, that is our only mission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ by sharing the message, which is done according to Jesus by teaching people all that he commanded them, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. You see, it's not, uh, it's not that we shouldn't build community among us. It's not that we shouldn't uh, create programs and events to attract people and give them something to come back to. It's not that we shouldn't do all things with excellence. We actually can and should do all of that because all of that stands to serve the actual mission of the church, making disciples of Jesus Christ by sharing the gospel with them. We just have to understand that all of those other things in and of themselves may be good, but they all bow in reverence to the gospel, the true mission of the church, which is why, by the way, anytime uh, here a program or event or gathering stops serving that mission of the gospel, we cut it off with prejudice. Listen, there are plenty of distractions to be had in this world. We do not need them in the church. And so this gospel... This message that is wholly unique to us is the mission. There is no other. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Everything else, at best, is a distraction, which means we desperately need to stop focusing on what we have in common with this world, our programs and our events and our gatherings, and start focusing instead on what is actually different about us because we are not the same. We are, in fact, changed, changed by the gospel, changed in how we view this life and in how we live it, which is the only truly unique thing about us. And it is exactly what people are looking for, what is different about us, not what is the same. And as you, uh, as you study these gospels, you find that to be exactly what Jesus was trying to teach the religious Jews, trying to teach the non-religious Jews, trying to teach the Gentiles, and trying to teach his own disciples the unique and decidedly counter-cultural message of the gospel that changed everyone who would ever receive it. 
As we'll see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the gospel according to Mark, which of course raises the question that we first asked last week in the first half of this sermon. Have you actually been changed by the gospel? Because look, it's, it's one thing for your life to be informed by the gospel. It is something altogether different to actually be changed by it. And it is those changes... Listen, guys, it's those changes. It's not our music. It's not our buildings. It's not our programs. It's not our events. It's not our services, but the actual changes in our lives that other people need to see and experience firsthand if they're going to be drawn to the church, to God's people, and to his message, and, of course, ultimately to him when they're actively seeking after truth. And although we certainly know that ultimately, of course, it's his spirit, who draws human souls to the truth. We also know that he most often does that by way of his spirit working through us. And so as we pick this story back up where we left off last time, we're going to see some of these changes, these, these transformative changes that reside in the person of Christ that also must occur in each of our own lives as his disciples if we're going to be able to influence those who are desperately seeking for truth. Because look, when those clearly observable, transformative changes mark the lives of believers and followers of Jesus Christ, the church will actually have more influence on our culture than our culture has on us. And so with that in mind, we stick, uh, pick this story back up. Just a reminder, by the way, last week uh, in the first half of the chapter, we saw that for those who are truly born again in Christ, the first change that occurs in us is power the power of the Holy Spirit that enters into every believer, which was also the first point in our outline if you're keeping notes. And so as Jesus now continues his lesson here, we're going to discover some of these other profound changes that shaped those early believers and ultimately the early church. Listen, which is also what fueled the entire spread of that first century Jesus movement like wildfire, even when at great odds with the culture around it and under heavy persecution. And the truth is, it's no different today. If the message of the gospel is to spread like wildfire in our lifetime, even though that message is increasingly in tension with the message of popular culture, if it's going to spread today, it will be spread through us, his 21st century disciples, for the very same reasons it spread through his first century disciples. The observable, tangible, undeniable changes that have occurred in us because of Christ and his message in us. So let's jump back into the story where we left off last time, Mark chapter 9. We'll start with verses 30 through 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does the mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So after ministering to people in and around Caesarea Philippi and nearby Mount Hermon, Jesus heads south, passing through Galilee on his way to Jerusalem as the prophet Isaiah foretold some 800 years earlier of the Christ. I've set my face like a flint, meaning I've set my gaze toward Jerusalem and the cross, and I know that I shall not be put to shame, Isaiah 57. In Luke's account of this same story, he says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9, 51. And indeed, this is Mark's final mention of Jesus spending time in Galilee until after the resurrection, and obviously, based on their conversation along the way, Jerusalem and the cross are certainly on the forefront of Jesus' mind as he yet again tells them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. And yet it seems that no matter how many times he, he tells them this, no matter how many times his disciples hear it, they cannot get their minds around this idea that the Messiah of Israel will have to suffer and die in order to establish his rule. As Mark explains, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And the reason they were afraid to ask him uh, actually becomes painfully clear as they reached the house at Capernaum. It was probably Peter's house with a patched roof. If you've been here through this series, you remember the men who tore a hole in his roof. And Jesus now sits down, which is significant, and he calls his disciples to come to him. Uh, in ancient Hebrew culture, when a rabbi, during a period of teaching, wanted to make a particularly formal announcement or to share something deeply profound, the rabbi would sit down. That was actually a signal to his students that what he was about to say was of special significance. And so in turn, the students or disciples would gather around the rabbi and sit as, at his feet as he shared, which is exactly what was happening here. Jesus knew what was on their minds already. He knew what was in their hearts already. He knew what they'd been talking about amongst themselves on the way, and so he sits down, and as soon as they're all there at his feet listening intently, he not only exposes their own hardened hearts, but he also outlines the next major change that they needed to embrace in their own lives. He says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And in this one statement, he stands the values and aspirations not only of these disciples, not only of the Jews, but of all human beings squarely on their heads. R.C. Sproul points out, every one of us is born with an aspiration for significance. We want our lives to count. We do not want to fail to achieve the goals we pursue in our lives. The last thing we want to do is to come in last. Yet here's Jesus sitting down as if to say, listen up, fellas. This is a profoundly important change that each of you must learn to embrace. If you really want to be first, you have to choose to be last. And notice, by the way, uh, Jesus is not actually denouncing greatness. He's not denouncing being first. He simply redefines the way you get there. 
In their Hebrew culture, much like our culture today, they were obsessed with a person standing among his peers, which we find evidence of throughout uh, the ancient rabbinic writings. I was looking through this week the Talmud, the central text of rabbinic Judaism, uh, the Midrash, the early rabbinic interpretations of Scripture. They both discuss who is actually the greatest in the kingdom of God. They talk about who lives the most righteously, those who teach the Torah, God's law. They talk about the priests and the Levites and the martyrs, and they all receive special mention in that discussion. In fact, in the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they actually, there's a prescription for the proper order of procession for those entering into the Qumran community, giving due honor to the members of the community who have an elevated status among the others. In other words, if you want to be first, then put yourself first because that's where you belong. You see, it's the very opposite of what Jesus taught and would prove to be a major shift in thinking and living for these disciples back then, just as I believe it is for us today. And so to drive his point home, Jesus picks up this little child, uh, which of course seems adorable to us, right? You've probably seen the paintings of Jesus holding the little child as he teaches his disciples, and everyone is sitting around happy and smiling, which seems really cute to us, but actually... Uh, actually, this was a jarring, uh, quite harsh, almost insulting object lesson for these men because in the ancient world, the mortality rate among children was so high that it was commonplace for babies to die before they reached five years old. And because of that, the smallest children on the whole were not even considered significant as human beings at that point, at least not until they were old enough, much older, to have a higher likelihood of survival and maturity and so Jesus picks up one of these little kids and puts him in his arms and he says whoever receives one such child in my name receives me in other words I know what you were talking about amongst yourselves which one of you is the greatest yet you're too afraid to ask me so let me just go ahead and clear that up for you right now the greatest among you is this little child, this seemingly insignificant, helpless, cannot even care for himself, little child who may not well live to see five years of age. You really want to know who's the greatest among you, boys? Well, here he is. This was yet another harsh rebuke by Jesus, and of course you can almost feel this awkward tension in the room because while Jesus is in the process of rebuking them, John interrupts him and says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. In other words, this is getting really uncomfortable, Jesus, so let's change the subject really fast. And so John says something that would surely make Jesus proud of them, the fact that they tried to stop an unauthorized disciple, an imposter as far as they were concerned, from spreading the message and work of Christ because he wasn't an official member of their club. And Jesus says no. No, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us, he's for us. Truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to me will by no means lose his reward. In other words, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's not about being a part of the club, boys. It's not about your status in uh, the community. It's not about your status at your job or in your church. It's not about recognition among your peers. 
As much as you are panting after all of that, I'm telling you the life of every true believer and follower of Jesus must be marked by servanthood. If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. This is actually one of the foundational principles in the kingdom of God. If you want to be first, you must choose to be last. And the way you choose to be last is by serving other people. In the ancient Greek, the word for servant, diakoneo, was uh, the common word at the time for waiting tables. In other words, a humble servant. And listen, this whole idea of subservience to others was so central to the thought and teachings and actions of Jesus, it's recorded through nearly every stratum of the early church. Mark 10, 43 and 44. Matthew 20, 26 and 27. Chapter 23, verse 11. Luke 22, 26. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And in uh, extra biblical writings, by the way, not books of the Bible, but historical books nonetheless. The epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians, chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, Polycarp was uh, the disciple of the Apostle John. The second century work, the shepherd of Hermas, which was actually considered to be canon, to be Bible by Irenaeus, who was the disciple of Polycarp, along with several of the other church fathers as well. In that work, Mandate, chapter 2, verse 1. Similitude, chapter 9, verse 29, as well. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas, chapter 22. The Acts of Peter, chapter 38. I can go on and on and on and on. The list just keeps going. This whole concept of the Christian life being marked by servanthood was a pervasive and inescapable reality of the early church. Listen, not because Jesus suggested it. No, it was because Jesus commanded it. You understand, for the Christian, exhausting your very life in the service of others is not optional. Jesus taught it to his disciples. He modeled it for others, and he demands it from us. There is no version of truly following Jesus where you don't utterly spend your life serving other people. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You want to discover your calling in life? Start serving others. You want to make the most of what God has given you? Start serving others. You want to have influence and recognition among your peers? Start serving others. Listen, if you want to be honored and respected by other people, then serve those very people, and they will not only honor and respect you, but I guarantee you they will see Jesus Christ in you. It's the opposite of what the world has been pushing since the beginning of time. The world says serve yourself. Demand respect. Act like you own the place. Tell everyone how great you are and make sure they see your giftings and your talents so you'll be properly recognized for who you are and what you're capable of. And meanwhile, Jesus says, okay, you think you're great? I'm telling you, a humble child who's quiet, obedient, and submissively serves the will of his parents, He's greater than all of you. You've heard me say it before. Jesus didn't call you to be successful. He called you to be obedient. Jesus called you to serve, which is meant to be one of the hallmarks 
of the Christian life, and it's not optional. Listen, we, we have no right to call ourselves followers of Jesus if we're not living lives of servanthood, because if you are not serving, then you are clearly not following Jesus. And I'll just tell you, every time I talk about next steps classes up here, where we invite you to come and be a part of uh, one of our ministries, I always have this habit of prefacing those remarks with the idea that we're never going to pressure you to get involved. You know, honestly, I really need to stop saying that. Because I'm not being honest with you as your pastor. If I tell you anything less than the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the morning star, the bread of life, the living water, the one through whom all things were made, that same Jesus set the bar for us when he got down on his own knees and washed the filthy feet of his disciples. And then right after that, allowed himself to be mocked, beaten, tortured and murdered for them, for you, and for me. And you know what? He demands nothing less from every single one of us. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's not optional. Truth is, the truth is, it's nothing short of ludicrous for any church full of Christians to be understaffed in any area of ministry. In fact, there should be waiting lists for people who want to serve, not because the church needs it, but because Jesus commanded it. It's the difference between us and the world. Listen, it's not our music. It's not. It's not our buildings. It's not our programs. It's not our events, and it's not our services. No, what separates us from the world is the actual changes in our lives that other people see in us that are contrary to everything this world stands for. Nothing is more contrary to the ways of this world and our culture than this one statement by Jesus. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Yet the modern American church has bred into its culture this idea that we come to church to be served, right? And so we do everything that we can to have the most friendly greeters and the most inviting space and the best tasting coffee and the most comfortable chairs and the most enjoyable music and the most engaging preachers and gifts and programs and events and on and on and on it goes. And yet if one thing is off, people leave and go look for another church that will serve them better. What is wrong with us? We don't come here to be served. We come to serve, to give. Listen, we come to lay our very lives down for each other. And look, it's not, it's not that any of those nice things, by the way, I just listed are wrong to have in and of themselves, as long as those nice things aren't the reason we keep coming back because our calling is not to be served. Our calling is to serve. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That is a change that the world really needs to see in us. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 42 to the end of the chapter. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. 
If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So Jesus continues his teaching here, and in order to fully understand what he's saying, we really need to keep his audience in view, right? At this point, he's not standing before the masses of people teaching the crowds. Now, right now, he's inside a house with his disciples quietly sitting at his feet, the same men who will be leading the church after Jesus is gone, the men who will be teaching others how to follow Christ. And so playing on the theme of the children who were obviously there, and part of the families, he said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is a metaphor for those who disciple others, particularly leaders in the church, those who teach. It's a continuation of the teaching that these disciples who will soon become church leaders must focus on serving others' needs rather than their own prideful desires. And of course, what is the greatest need of them all? It's the gospel. And so Jesus says, listen, if you teach anything less than the whole counsel of God, the gospel in its entirety, the parts you like and the parts you don't like, if you add or take away from any part of this message causing others to stumble, it is not only sin, but sin of the gravest order. In fact, teaching any version of my gospel other than the one I'm teaching you right now is such a serious offense, you'd be better off having a great millstone hung around your neck and then be tossed into the sea, which in ancient Jewish literature was considered a place of terror and chaos. It's an obvious reference by Jesus to hell. It's so clear, and yet people are so careless and cavalier today to teach their own version of this gospel, one that suits their lifestyle, one that promises everything for us while requiring nothing from us. It's an easy gospel that feels really, really good and one they would deal with even in the early church not long from here, a false gospel that according to Jesus leads straight to hell, which he goes on to describe. To these men, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled with two hands to go to hell uh, than to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Can you imagine being one of these men? They've walked away from their lives, their jobs, their families, their homes. They've left everything to follow Jesus and committed their lives to him and believe in him and love him and serve him. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. You're saying that to me, Jesus? Come on. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a quote from Isaiah 66, 24. You're quoting that to me. I can't imagine it. Yet it's such a stark realization of where we all are in the presence 
of Jesus Christ. During the reigns of King Ahaz and King Manasseh in ancient Israel, the people began sacrificing their own children to the pagan god Moloch, where they would take these kids to this giant ravine. It's just south of Jerusalem to be sacrificed, a place that came to be known as Gehenna. But then Josiah becomes king and he puts a stop to these human sacrifices and he wants to permanently pollute Gehenna so this would never happen again in that place. And so King Josiah turns the ravine into a massive, a massive garbage dump for this whole city. And as the ravine becomes full, they light the garbage along with the carcasses of dead animals and even the dead bodies of criminals. They light it all on fire to get rid of it to the point that the fires in Gehenna never went out. And as the people would continually bring more garbage and more corpses and more bodies to the ravine, the fires kept burning and burning and burning day and night. And the worms feasted on the dead bodies until eventually Gehenna became a metaphor for hell, which every Jew was well aware of. And so Jesus is using that metaphor as he says to his disciples, listen, whatever it is that is most precious to you in your life, I don't care what it is, if it's causing you to sin, you'd be better off to cut those things out of your life and go to heaven without them than to take all of it with you right into hell. It's the third major distinctive, the third transformative change that Jesus says should be evident in every follower of his, a hallmark in the life of every single Christian, holiness. And of course, this is a biblical topic that doesn't get a lot of press these days because deep down, every one of us knows that we fall woefully short of perfect holiness, which makes talking about it quite uncomfortable. Yet I'm pretty sure, actually I'm pretty sure Jesus' disciples couldn't have been any more uncomfortable than they were listening to Jesus talk about sin and hell and the need for holiness in their lives. Obviously, Jesus was using metaphor to describe the problem of sin, which is a matter of the heart. You remember uh, back in chapter 7 where Jesus said that sin doesn't come from outside. It comes from within the human heart. In other words, you could physically dismember your entire body and still sin because sin comes from in here. And so no matter what it is, if the deepest desires of your heart lead you to sin, then you must forsake those desires. You must die to yourself. You must suffer the loss of that passion and cling to the cross. What is the cross? It's a place of suffering. And I'll just tell you, I personally believe, by the way, when the biblical writers talk about suffering for Christ, I know we, we tend to immediately go to persecution in our minds, and certainly that was a reality for them. But I also believe that when the biblical writers talked about suffering for the sake of Christ, they were often recalling all of the things they had to cut out of their own lives and give up while dying to themselves so they could better devote themselves to Christ and His message without the former distractions of this world ruining their lives and ruling their lives. And so just look at what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church at Philippi, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered. 
For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3, 4 through 8. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. What things, Paul? What things have you suffered the loss of? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, Pharisee. I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had pedigree, status, influence, power, respect, experience, and this is the big one, the moral high ground, according to the world. You understand what he's saying here, right? He's not talking about persecution. He was certainly persecuted, and he talks about that in other places, but here he's not talking about suffering because of persecution. No, Paul is describing the exact process that Jesus just described to his disciples. This is Paul deliberately and painfully cutting everything out of his life that he once held dear in order that he might gain Christ. And make no mistake about it, it was a tremendous cause of suffering in Paul's life. Which is precisely why we don't like talking about holiness. Because it inevitably necessitates a degree of suffering on our part when we deal with our own sin. Sometimes a great degree of suffering, as I can attest to firsthand. And of course, no one likes to suffer. And so instead, we simply avoid the issue of sin and holiness until it becomes a non-issue for many professing believers today, even though Jesus, listen, Jesus literally talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. Far more, in fact, than he ever talked about heaven. And yet somewhere along the way, in much of the modern church at least, we've attached ourselves to this idea that we can gain Christ without giving up anything else. Despite the fact that Jesus and the biblical writers were emphatic about everything that we would have to suffer the loss of just to follow him. Read Luke, the last third of chapter 14. Jesus spells it out. This is what you're going to have to give up if you're going to follow me. By the way, uh, just to be crystal clear, there's nothing inherently inside of you that makes you holy. You understand, only Jesus Christ can make you holy. Okay, there's nothing inside of you that can make you holy, but listen, there is plenty inside of you that can keep you from being made holy. And so Jesus says, whatever it is, it is better to suffer the loss of something near and dear to your heart than to take it with you right into hell, which is what clinging to the cross looks like. It's suffering the loss of everything that keeps the Spirit of Christ from changing you from the inside out. And listen, this world, many elements actually of the modern church that are worldly will tell you that you don't have to give up anything in order to gain Christ. You can do and say and believe virtually anything you want to and it doesn't matter as long as you also believe in Jesus. You can still be a Christian and live any way that you want to. It's actually a form of relativism. Andrew Womack once said, one of the things I've learned is that many Christians never let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. Relativism. What is right for me is right for me. What is right for you is right for you. There are no absolutes. Everything is relative. Everything is up for interpretation. So you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone and we'll both be good. Of course, if you challenge that assertion at all, 
you're immediately labeled as an intolerant religious bigot. Because the world believes it has the moral high ground over the church today. Right? How many times do we hear people in the media now saying that those of us who cling to a biblically orthodox Christianity are going to end up on the wrong side of history, right? If you don't celebrate and promote homosexuality, if you don't champion abortion, if you don't affirm gender neutrality, in short, if you don't approve of any and all behavior that people choose to participate in today, regardless of what the Bible actually teaches us about that behavior and the human hearts that it comes from, then you are going to end up on the wrong side of history. Well, listen, I would rather suffer the loss of being on the right side of history than to go to hell because I was too afraid to confront my own sin. No. Listen, what we need to do is to be honest. Why can't we just cut through all of the talk and be honest? Honest with ourselves and honest with each other about what Jesus actually said, what He actually taught, how He actually lived. There's nothing like the world. There were indeed these changes that, that must occur in the life of every human being as well, anyone who would ever at least choose to follow Him. And I understand, although that may be hard for us to swallow at times, the fact is, the fact is we're supposed to be different. Christians aren't supposed to be like the rest of the world. No, we are supposed to be changed. Full of the power of the Spirit of Christ. Living lives of servanthood. Lives that the world doesn't even begin to understand. Lives of holiness that reflect Jesus and His message with every decision, with every motive, with every sacrifice, with every commitment, everything that is truly different about us. And it is those changes, right? It's, it's not our music. It's not our buildings. It's not our programs. It's not our events. It's not our services. But the actual changes in our lives that other people need to see and experience firsthand if they're going to see Christ in us and understand what life actually looks like when you truly follow Him. It's a life full of power. It's a life spent serving others. And it's a life set apart from the culture around us. You see, the world isn't looking for people who simply believe in Jesus Christ. No, what the world is looking for is people who have been changed by Jesus Christ. Let's pray.